This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I don't know how you get started on a true crime, uh, like a rabbit hole, but um, I've started kind of tracking how I get there. Have you ever done that? Like, how did I get to this case from that case? Occasionally. A lot of times I already have like a little bit of knowledge about something, so it's kind of hard. But yeah, I understand what you're saying. This case's origin for me is an article from the New York Times from July of 2023 by a guy named Chris Cameron. And I think what happened was I started paying attention to cases that were similar to this because of this case. So the title of this article is Over 700 Civil War Era Gold Coins Found Buried on a Kentucky Farm. And the subtitle is, this is the most insane thing ever, said the man who unearthed the coins in a cornfield, according to a video posted last month. So this is June 9th of 2023 that this guy posted a video on YouTube. And here's what Chris's article says. A Civil War era treasure of more than 700 gold coins was unearthed in a Kentucky cornfield. A find that has at least partly vindicated legends of lost Civil War gold that have driven American treasure hunters for more than 150 years. The discovery, which coin sellers have called the Great Kentucky Hoard, was made on a farm by a man who has so far remained anonymous. In the video posted June 9th on YouTube, the man is seen frantically counting mounds of coins caked with dirt. This is the most insane thing ever, he said pointing out coins that were later certified by the Numismatic Guarantee Company as genuine $1, $10, and $20 gold coins minted before and during the Civil War. The man's excited reaction to the discovery was perhaps a hint that he knew just how much that gold was worth. Government.com, a coin dealer that is now selling the coins, valued a single gold dollar from the collection at roughly $1,000. And as of Sunday morning, those coins were already sold out. One type of coin in the hall drew particular attention from coin collectors. Gold Liberty Double Eagles minted in 1863, which today are valued at anywhere from a few thousand dollars up to $381,875 at auction, depending on their condition and when and where they were minted. With government.com selling several double eagles in the hoard for more than $100,000, the total value of the treasure could exceed a million dollars. The buried treasure included several coins minted in 1862 and 1863, when Kentucky was the site of fierce battles between the United States and the Confederacy. Kentucky's government had at first declared the state neutral in the Civil War, but abandoned that policy and sided with the Union after the Confederacy invaded western Kentucky in September of 1861. The state was politically divided, with Kentucky residents fighting on both sides of the conflict. The coins may have been buried during that period to protect them from an invading army, according to the Guarantee Company. Ryan McNutt, a conflict archaeologist at Georgia Southern University said in an email to Live Science that it was possible the hoard was buried ahead of a destructive Confederate raid that was carried out by Brigadier General John Morgan in the summer of 1863. Another raid by the general in Kentucky in 1864 was described by one of his soldiers as bank robbed, stores plundered, universal pillage of private property. Many treasure hunters have unearthed valuables that were buried in the Civil War era, spawning legends and rumors of immense fortunes, some of them lost in a shipwreck. Efforts to recover these troves are fiercely competitive. 
After the FBI excavated an area of rural Pennsylvania where a trove of lost Civil War gold was rumored to have been lost, treasure hunters accused the FBI of a cover-up, arguing that the agency had hidden its discovery of the gold and taken it for itself. That may explain why the man who discovered the treasure in Kentucky has so far chosen to remain anonymous. It's unclear how he found the gold and whether he had suspected that the treasure was buried on the farm. Despite the secrecy, some hobbyists say the mysterious treasure hunter's efforts to remain hidden have not gone far enough. I would never even think about posting this find on the World Wide Web for anyone and everyone to see, said a highly upvoted YouTube comment underneath the video of the hoard's discovery. Keep that stash private. First of all, we've covered that time period and those raids, if you remember, in other episodes. Right, we were talking about, it was during Christmas last year. Yeah, we've talked about not just those the, that scenario, but we also talked about the Pennsylvania treasure situation briefly. It was one of our true crime news items a couple years ago. This set me down a path where a lot of the summer, I was looking at interesting stories related to odd finds and some that cross over into true crime. Now, for where we're going next, and, and I know that like this is sort of a, a, a diversion from our norm, we're going to be spending multiple episodes over the next few weeks going down a path that like really kind of proves to me that you should remain anonymous if you find treasure. But there are some situations where that's impossible because of the links you have to go to to find it and to deal with it. And what I thought I would start with is the gold rushes. Just one more thing about this article in particular. Um, I, I just want to say, I think it's a good idea, like saying, oh, yeah, you should have never put that on the Internet. The issue is that without doing that, unless you just really love gold coins, right, uh, to like have as decorations, there's not a whole lot you can do with like a $10 gold Liberty coin, right? Or uh, the $20 gold Liberty coin or the super rare Liberty double Eagles, right? Like yeah. you can't just go to the store and use that, right? I mean, I, you might be able to, but like you're not going to want to use it for its face value, right? No, you're going to auction that off for its collector's value. That's the whole idea. Correct. And so, you know, in doing that, it's very difficult to r remain anonymous. Well, he stayed anonymous, but like it's very difficult to unload a hoard of coins uh, without exposing the fact that it's they've been found. Right. Right. And so I don't know that it is as easy as just like, you know, not telling anybody about it unless you just, like I said, really like to decorate things with gold coins and have them in your house. It would not be the oddest thing that I've heard of people decorating their house with this year, <laughs> even in Kentucky. I hear you. Andrew Salzberg, who is the executive vice president of the Certified Collectibles Group, he told Spectrum News One, uh, Sam Neff over there reporting that his organization believes that this a particular fine would exceed $2 million at auction. Other estimates said that it might be more like a million bucks. I don't, I don't know for sure. Like what I think of all of this, I do know it's, you know, it's, it's sort of an interesting, almost like a time capsule to find this type of hoard of coins. They're calling it the great Kentucky hoard. If you go onto YouTube, it, it is, it is a cool uh, video that they put on there. And it's a it, it's a it's dozens of coins just laying there. So when I I see something like this, it sticks with me for a number of reasons. One, the history; two, the value; and three, you know, there's some crime in there somewhere. Man, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? It really does. So, uh, like I said, this made me want to go back to the California gold rush. But, and I I found a case, which, in my opinion, is like. Is it a crime? Is it not a crime? It's kind of right on the cusp. But it's so sprawling that it's going to take us a while to tell this story and to do any justice to it. 
But I'll say this. Because of something that happened 160 years ago, there is a man sitting in jail for not a crime right now. And we're going to tell his story, but to get there, we're, we're going to cover some history. So if you're not into history and you're not into that kind of stuff, the next few episodes are going to be called Deep Gold, and you may want to avoid them. But I would at least like check it out because I'm not that into history, honestly, but this is intriguing. Yeah, this is, it's definitely one of the most fascinating things that I've come across. And just for the people that are sticking around, I am going to like today, the first thing that I'm going to lead off with, um, because we're going to try and keep these episodes of a, a nominal length, even with advertisements at the end and and like all of the things that come with a true crime access episode, we're going to try and make them where you can kind of have them all in one sitting. Uh, And you, you're probably going to end up with around six hours, six to eight hours of material. Uh, I'm I'm letting people know that from the perspective of, of that's how I think we have to tell a story. We also, Megan, I believe that something big is about to happen in this case. And that's the reason that we're laying it out now when we're laying it out. We thought about telling the story in a synopsized form with the Halloween episodes you just heard. But we ultimately decided that that probably was not going to be great timing to do just one episode. And we realized trying to record it that there's so much information and so many interesting stories attached to this that we could lead into it with – some gold rush era stories and tell a little about the history and we could still easily segue into enough material here that I think it'll keep people interested. It's definitely one of the most fascinating situations that someone who did not remain anonymous got themselves into. I agree. So for today to, to get there, I'm going to get back in time to a slightly different gold rush than the one we're going to finally land on. The gold rush we're going to talk about first happened from 1875 to 1885. It was known as the Caribou Gold Rush. Have you ever heard of this? I have, yep. Okay, so the Caribou Gold Rush, it was a gold rush in the colony of British Columbia, which today that is the Canadian province of British Columbia. A gold discovery was made at Hills Bar in 1858. Now, Hills Bar in our world is a long-abandoned ghost town that was a boom town. It's situated right near the banks of the Fraser River between uh, Yale and the mouth of Emory Creek. The, The bar that it's named for was the first active place at the mining site when this gold rush began. They had more strikes that happened along Horsefly River in 1859, and then they had horse they had gold strikes at Keithley Creek and Antler Creek. Now a gold strike is when someone begins to find the first signs of gold. It's uh, the discovery, but the strike is when they realize that it is leading to what would be called a gold field, meaning there's quite a bit of this material there for people to essentially harvest out of the earth. The actual rush didn't begin until 1861, but that was because these discoveries at Hills Bar, Horsefly River, Keithley Creek, and Antler Creek were suddenly publicized all at one time. By 1865, following a new strike along Williams Creek, uh, actually a new series of strikes along Williams Creek, the gold rush blew up. So towns there became towns. Before these publications of these strikes, particularly the Williams Creek strike, which Richfield is the first one, uh, Richfield becomes the seat of the government in the region and that's where the courts are, and then it's connected to these other little towns. Uh, Barkerville is a town that came out of there. It's preserved as a heritage site these days, and it's sort of a tourist attraction. But it's strange to me to say, you know, a town 
appeared, but that's literally what happened with these gold these gold rushes. Right. And the reason that the town appeared was because you've suddenly got something attracting people that weren't there previously. They come to the area, right? And as people come in to, you know, mine the gold fields, you know, they need places to stay. They need to buy food to eat. They need to have their everyday uh, needs met. And because they're there mining gold, they have money to spend on it. Right. They have, they have something to trade for it. And so that is why the infrastructure uh, is able to sort of – actually, it, it was sort of required, right, um, in order yeah. to, su- to support these explorations. And so that's why, like, um, all of the gold rushes were so important as far as the development out West right now, I know this is um, up into Canada, but it's still West, right? Yeah. I started here because it was one of the most well-documented gold rushes. Now the California gold rush happened before this and we're going to get there. That's where we're headed. But I wanted to use this one because I felt like this is a good place in time. And there's still a really good series of crimes that happens here uh, in terms of, like being there when I say good, I mean, they're well-documented. You can actually follow a path of what happened as opposed to some of the crime that occurred before this, if it wasn't publicized or it wasn't investigated and publicized, you really don't know that it happened. And the same is true with uh, the caribou gold rush. It's a little later in time. So people knew that this would change an area completely. And, there are multiple gold rushes that happen in this area of Canada. Weirdly, the Caribou Gold Rush is not a huge influx of American prospectors, but the, shortly after it, there were the Fraser Cannon rushes, and Fraser Canyon rushes brought in uh, they brought in a lot of Americans, and a lot of them were coming out of the California uh, gold area. Because interestingly enough, the way that these towns build up, they sort of keep going, the towns themselves, but eventually there's no gold left in that specific area to find. So it becomes almost like a migrant thing. Now, I don't know what you've heard about this, Meg, but in the different readings that we've been doing, which includes multiple books and loads of articles, and uh, at this point I'm in the thousands of pages of court documents, at the time... The average salary was very low, like single dollars per day. And what gold offered was with like a very small discovery, you could suddenly have thousands of dollars. That itself was attractive enough to bring in a huge amount of people, but also it brought in a variety of types of people. And some of those people were not as savory as others. The next interesting thing that happens with a gold rush occurring is roads have to be built. The biggest thing that came out of the Caribou Gold Rush, in my opinion, is Caribou Road. Caribou Road was a project that was initiated in 1860 by a man named James Douglas, who was the governor of the colony of British Columbia. This was quite the engineering spectacle to see. Essentially, they had to figure out how to make a safe wagon road go from Fort Yale, which is an unincorporated town in British Columbia, to Barkerville, BC. And they had to navigate a canyon, Fraser Canyon, which I've already mentioned. So between the 1860s and the 1890s, the Caribou Road existed in three versions as this massive surveyed and constructed wagon road route. The first Caribou Road was surveyed in 1861, which means they measured it all out and they plotted it. They built it in 1862. It followed the original Hudson Bay Company's Harrison Trail, and that was a a specific route that ran along past Clinton, 70-mile house, 100-mile house, and 150-mile house. 
And this is one of the most important parts of our story today. This road was built as a reaction to the concentration of gold in the Caribou region and the fact that people were having to use a dangerous mule trail that is a very narrow path that is essentially running along as part of a cliff. And it's wide enough for only one mule. Now, the second Caribou Wagon Road, or Yale Caribou Caribou Road, operated during the period of the fast stagecoaches and freight wagon companies headquartered in Yale. And so that ran from 1865 to 1885. That essentially happens after our story today. Uh, From the water landing at Yale, this road ran north via Fraser Canyon. It ran over an area called Hell's Gate. And Hell's Gate is an abrupt narrowing of the Fraser River. And it ran over Jackass Mountain. And Jackass Mountain is a mountain in the northern uh, Cascades of the Cascade Range. Uh, It is named for these mule trains that used to run through it. The third caribou caribou road version was a revised route that it came about in 1885 following the completion of the canadian pacific railway now one of the things that happened in gold rush situations is inevitably stagecoaches and horses don't get things there fast enough so people figured out how to stretch the railway into these areas uh, that had gold rushes and, he, and they usually didn't go directly to where the gold rush that was occurring happened. They would go to an area around it. And the idea was they were thinking that the gold rush was going to expand into the surrounding areas over time. Now the railway station at Ashcroft became the Southern end of the wagon road and Ashcroft is a village in Thompson County, which is in the interior of British Columbia, Canada. Much of this wagon road was destroyed by the railway construction, as well as by washouts and by what's known as the Great Flood of 1894. And people did not get interested in rebuilding these portions of roads until this massive highway was planned for automobiles in the late 1920s. Okay, so that's sort of where we start out today, and that's a that's a glancing overview. The person that we're going to focus on is a woman named Agnes McVie. Agnes McVie ran a hotel and a store on the Caribou Wagon Road from 1875 to 1885 during the gold rush. That hotel and store was located at 108 Mile House. So she lived there with her husband, Jim McVie, and with a son-in-law named Al Riley. The story goes that there was a miner who came along. And to give you an idea of what was going on here, we're going to go to a January 8th, 2014 article from Williams Lake Tribune. The title of this article is Murder and Mayhem at Mile 108. Many of the roadhouses on the Caribou Wagon Road had an interesting and colorful past. But none of them matched the story of the Mile 108 Roadhouse between 1875 and 1885. During that time, the roadhouse was located at the junction of the Caribou Wagon Road and a fur brigade trail, which led to Harper's Camp, or Horsefly. The original location is across the highway from the present 108-mile heritage site. The roadhouse was owned and operated by Scotswoman Agnes McVie and her husband, Jim. Agnes was described as a buxom, strong, and attractive woman who had come from Scotland to settle in British Columbia. According to old legal records found in the old country, she was wanted for seven murders and three beatings in her hometown. It was also said that she could lift a 200-pound sack of grain with ease. At the time, the Mile 108 Roadhouse was a three-story inn. Agnes ran the place. Jim tended to the horses and the livestock, and he did all of the chores around. Al Riley, the bartender, was a scheming, muscular young man who was also Agnes's son-in-law. Both men were completely dominated by Agnes. It was common knowledge that at this roadhouse, a traveler could purchase food, liquor, and lodging 
and for a price, a young woman. Girls who were running away from home often came through the area on their way to the gold fields of the caribou. They were hoping to find a rich husband. But it was said that Agnes would capture these girls, tie them up with ropes, and keep them manacled in one of the outbuildings until she could sell them. There, the story gets worse. When a man stopped at the roadhouse with money looking to purchase a companion, or even just for an evening's board and room, Al, the bartender, would ply him with whiskey. After several drinks, Al would make an excuse to leave the room. He would creep outside, meet up with Agnes, who handed him a loaded rifle, and then Al would shoot the unsuspecting traveler from behind an open window. Meanwhile, Jim had a horse already harnessed to a wagon and waiting. The three of them would load up the corpse and take it to the nearby lake, where it was dumped in and just left there. Those who were found were assumed to have been murdered and robbed by outlaws, according to local authorities at the time. Madams of houses of ill repute, farmers, merchants, miners, and prospective buyers of Agnes's young women were all to fall victim to these three murderers. Over a 10-year period, it is said that the remains of at least 59 bodies were found in the small lakes around the area. Agnes would take the loot carried by her victims, most of it in gold nuggets or coin, and she would bury it near the roadhouse. According to various estimates, Agnes had more than $150,000 buried in various caches in the area. Jim would take the horses of the victim, waiting until he had collected a string of them. Then he would head south to Fort Kamloops. He had become quite well known as a wealthy horse dealer. Then, suddenly, it all fell apart for the three villains. A good-looking gambler, whose last name was McDonald, appeared. He wanted to buy a girl to take with him to the goldfields. The usual plan was implemented, and when Al Riley joined Agnes outside to do the shooting, she refused to give him the rifle. Instead, she went back into the roadhouse, and the next morning, she sold McDonald a comely 17-year-old girl for $4,000. He left with the girl and rode off towards the north, but Jim followed the pair, and he returned that evening with a sack of gold coins. Agnes angrily confronted her husband, and Jim admitted that he had killed McDonald. He gave Agnes the sack of gold coins. The next morning, Agnes appeared to have forgiven Jim, and she cooked him a hearty breakfast. But partway through, he stopped and fell to the floor, rolling about with violent convulsions. Jim died shortly thereafter, having been poisoned by Agnes. Okay, so let's just talk about this for a second. This is a lot. It is a lot. Um, She has sort of legendary status, right? She does. And I don't, you know, reading this is, I'm not saying it's not real. I'm saying it's sort of poorly documented and it does come with legendary status. You have things that are told sort of word of mouth. I think it's a good sort of representation of some of the stuff that, I mean, this would be the extreme, right? But, like, stuff going wrong in a situation where you've oh, got, yeah. like, migrant uh, gold rush workers, right? Yeah, and, and I think it's representative of, like, how some – this is – like you said, it's the extreme. But this is definitely someone who is ready to take advantage of all angles of a situation, if any of this is true. <laughs> You're absolutely I mean, they're getting right. them coming and right. going. How do they how do they choose who they want to sell the girl to? Because you would think you'd want to rob the guy with the most money. I don't right? know. So, okay, one thing about this entire situation that I find uh would be it would make it seem less credible as opposed to making it seem more credible would be the fact that like she was supposedly had girls for sale but like she was never actually selling the girls she was just stealing the money and killing the guy right um so that made me wonder but i think that i think part of her you know sort of spiel that she was known for was you know to buy a female a young female you would need a substantial amount of money right um and so that was sort of the lure and i guess she that was how she would know if it was worth it or not i guess right 
Hmm, is this, guess, is this yeah. guy going to be worth robbing and killing and having to deal with? Now, depending on who, you know, you hear this uh, story from, you know, she could have killed so many people that it wouldn't have mattered if it was worth it or not to her, right? But that's what I yeah. thought initially was that I think that it was more of like a pitch. Like, oh, if you want a girl, you can find one at a 108-mile house, right? And there's this woman yeah. there. And I imagine her son-in-law was probably instrumental in getting potential customers there. Now, I mean, my understanding was that the place was a uh, hotel. It was a place for travelers to stay, right? Yeah, it was a hotel, a bar, and you could get some level of food. And I, I'll be honest, like what I think of is like old Western brothels. Exactly, right. That's what I Except picture. that's never really said anywhere. It's like, and then I wondered like what, when they're talking about her having girls for sale, um, you know, this would be a time where there could be a lot of really young immigrant girls who don't have anywhere else to go. And, you know, she could take them in and, you know, sell them off. It would be like the very first types of, you know, sex trafficking, basically. Um, but I wonder... I don't know if it would be the well, first types. I think it would be the first. I'd be. It, it, you're right. It would be like American history's version of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I know that sex trafficking has happened forever and ever, but like, I'm just, I'm just trying to sort of think it through in my mind, right? Like, okay, so, and and I wonder, like, well, did that mean like she's actually selling off these girls, or does that mean like a brothel situation, right, where they're paying, but the girl doesn't go anywhere, right? Um, it yeah. seems to me like, uh, without sort of this, uh, her son-in-law being sort of this instrumental, like part of, you know, maybe coaxing guys, like with, they have money, we have girls, that kind of thing. It seems like the jig would be up pretty fast, right? That's what I would but think, yeah. it doesn't seem like that is what occurred, at least according to, like, the legend, right? Um, it seems like maybe when, uh, you know, the migrant miners were on their way out of town, and then when she killed them and they never showed up where they were going, uh, the people that they were going back to thought they were just still mining, and the people that they had been mining with before they left thought they had left, Right. And so because yeah. of the day and age, that gap wasn't noticed immediately. Right. So when they show up murdered, it's definitely because they were being robbed. And she sort of gets off the hook from that as well in some ways. Right. Exactly. But she made so. All right. So Jim dies shortly after he has this, this problem where he's killed this guy, McDonald. He's admitted to Agnes that he killed McDonald. But apparently there's a fatal flaw here. Do you know what that was? Uh, actually, no, I don't think I do. Okay. So the idea is that McDonald left with a girl that he paid $4,000 for. And Jim, being just smart enough to chase down McDonald and kill him, but dumb enough to know to admit it to Agnes also was dumb enough that he forgot about the girl. The girl got away from Jim because apparently when he killed McDonald, she had been in a, whether she was off using the bathroom or whatever, she was in a position that Jim didn't kill her. So she is able to find the police. And, well, actually, I think the legend goes that police found her. Local law enforcement officers from, I think it would have been known at the Northwest, like they became the Mounties, so like it would have been the Northwest Marshals, maybe. I don't remember exactly what they would have called them in that year. But essentially, they find the girl, and she tells them the whole story. She tells them that, that McDonald had been murdered and that Jim had done it, and she's able to point out Jim. So the police go to 
the roadhouse and whatever else you want to call it, the brothel, the bar, they go to Agnes's 108 mile house. And when they get there, Agnes is carrying out Jim's body without. Agnes tells him this story that her husband had accidentally eaten rat poison and that they were just going to give him a proper burial. And she said the girl was crazy and she had no idea what she was talking about. But the girl basically said, if you go look in the basement, there are other girls tied up down there. So the police go look in the basement and they find eight young girls in the basement of the hotel. They end up arresting Agnes McVie and they end up arresting Al Riley. One version of the story says that Al Riley is her son-in-law. Another version of the story says that Al Riley is her brother-in-law. So I'm just going to say there are some issues. They take McVie and Riley to Fort Kamloops. They're charged and convicted of murder and kidnapping. And they are transported to, to New Westminster. And they are incarcerated in the New Westminster jail. But Agnes had kept some of the poison on her. So she kills herself before she can be executed. And Al Riley is hanged shortly thereafter. As fascinating as this story is, there's an important lesson in all of this. This could all be BS. And that is the case with every single story out of the gold rush time. Right. There's a lot of uh, the details I, I do. I, I'm pretty sure it stems from an actual happening, right? I mean, something happened. Something here. Okay. Yes, something here but, happened. Yes. Um, a lot of things at this point in time uh, that we're talking about, they're not 100% verifiable, right? Because right. of, you know, different things. But it is, um, it's based on, you know, sort of a true story. But it's also used in a legendary type way, right? And I feel like they yes. it's held on to because there was a lot of downsides to the gold rush, right? And in yes. this particular case, it's a it's an illustration of I I think it's used mostly for like Agnes's greed, right? Because essentially she was just she was after the money that these people had, regardless of the of you know having to kill them and steal the money from them. Or you know if she was selling these young girls, she was basically kidnapping them and keeping them hostage, right? And so yeah. it was. You know, it, it's really terrible. And for her to be this, like, serial killer, right, it's actually... Yeah. a significant one at that. Oh, right, and, and the numbers vary, like, vastly. And it, honestly, at this point in time, the nature of the story, it, it's really hard to sort of figure out you know, who all her victims could be because of their, uh, their transitory nature as far as being minors and, and migrating to and from the area. Right. And so a lot of it is up in the air, but I feel like it's probably based on something, right? Yeah. That's kind of how I feel that, that it is based on something. And I noticed that uh, there's a, a graphic novel, I guess you would call it, almost like a, a very long or a very nice comic book by Sarah Levitt. And she has kind of expanded on this idea. And I've noticed that some of those things that she expanded on have started to be included in the legend. Right. And uh, that's been more recently. And so this isn't going to be like that far out of a timeline for anybody that is in the true crime genre. Because I, I can't remember what I saw, but something came up recently about I don't actually know if it was like more uh, documentary or legendary uh, with regard to Agnes McVie. Well, so, okay, let's talk about that for a second. They do have some things that can be tracked. According to Mar Marianne Rutledge, now she's the president of the 100 Mile and District Historical Society. And one of the things they do is they document and preserve locations along those the caribou road that i was telling you about the different versions of the caribou road and they document a lot of stuff from this time period as well as other time periods as that area expanded the agnes McVie story is alleged to have 
originated from a single source. That source, according to Marianne, is an out-of-publication booklet from the 1970s called Lost Treasure in BC Number 3. It's by a guy named Larry Lazio of Fort Langley, who was collecting stories that were sort of -of word-of-mouth stories and trying to just get them into a publication. So the, the story is that he sat down with this man who was 90 some years old and got some of his stories. And one of those stories was the story of Agnes McVie. And at one point in time, it was completely debunked. However, there was a very important thing that happened. And that is when people went to survey the area and excavate the area, they dug up caches of gold around where the 108-mile house would have originally been, which is across the road from where the house is now. So Rutledge states that in 1929, there was a farmer who had unearthed unearthed a a cache of gold in bags. More recently, when a nearby airport was built, excavation dug up a sum of cash from that era in that area. So there's something to be said for that part of the legend. It's kind of like you said. There's a little something to it. Whether the rest of the story is true or not, we won't, we don't know. There is an article, I think it gets mentioned on the the Wikipedia, but I'm not sure. It's from 2001. September 1st, 2001, a guy named Greg Joyce published an article called The Murdering Madam of a 108-Mile House. Now, you can still find this. It's printed in the Prince George, uh, which is the Prince George Citizen, which is in Prince George, B.C., And his story says that there's no documentary evidence that he can find, but there are also no other documents of the ownership of a 108-mile hotel, which is the place that Agnes McVie is supposed to have run. Uh, According to him, missing persons records do not list anyone who lodged at the hotel between 1875 and 1885 is reported missing. There are no police records of the arrest or trial that he can find. And this is according to him and Marianne Rutledge, despite extensive searches in Kamloops, uh, New Westminster and in Victoria in the provincial archives, they can't find any record of the legal actions that were alleged to have taken, but they can find the records of other legal actions from that time period, but none for McVie or Riley, including they can't find Al Riley or McVie's death certificate which if the state had executed them or had them in custody, supposedly there would be death certificates. So I thought this would be a good segue from Halloween and the creepy stuff into deep gold. At least give people one last crazy serial killer. Where we're headed has so much documentation that it took us a really long time to get through it all. And the wild thing is, it just keeps creating documents. But we're headed to the California gold rush. And I thought I'd end the episode telling a little bit of a story uh, about the gold rush. Just to, like, just a, a glancing overview. Do you think that sounds like a good idea? Sure. Okay. So the California gold rush, it technically began on January 24th, 1848. A guy there named James Marshall was at a place called Sutter's Mill. And he noticed in uh, what would be the run of the mill, he found pieces of gold. And while that date is touted as the beginning of the rush, I will say that all the accounts I've read of James Marshall over the years, he wasn't 100% sure what he had found. And he thought it was gold, and he did a lot of work to verify it before telling anyone. And he originally wanted to be one of those guys who didn't tell a soul. It didn't work out that way. So over the time that he found gold at Sutter's Mill, whenever the actual first date was, he definitely ended up being the impetus for the entire California gold rush. Uh, According to his recounting of what happened. He says he picked up one or two pieces. He examined them attentively and having some general knowledge of minerals, 
He could not call to mind more than two, which in any way resembled this. One was iron, which would be very bright and brittle, and the other would be gold, bright yet malleable. And then he says, I tried it between two rocks and found that it could be beaten into a different shape, but it could not be broken. I collected four or five pieces and went up to Mr. Scott, who was a man who worked there. He was at the carpenter's bench making the mill wheel with the pieces in his hand. He said, I found it. Scott said, what is it? And Marshall said, it's gold. And Scott said, that can't be. And the, the end of that quote is Marshall saying, I know it to be nothing else. And they did, they, like, if you go check out his Wikipedia, they talk about it a little bit. He is a prime character for one of the chapters of one of the books that we're going to be talking about as we go along. But they did quite a bit of testing with lye soap boil tests. They hammered this out. And the more that they looked, the more of this stuff they found. James Marshall is to blame in Coloma, California for the gold rush. The news of gold being found in this area brought more than 300,000 people to California. And they came from everywhere. They came from all over the U.S. and they came from abroad. The sudden influx of the gold into the money supply actually reinvigorated the American economy at the time. The population increase allowed California to become a state in 1850. But the gold rush had severe adverse effects on Native Californians. It also accelerated the Native American population's decline from disease, uh, starvation, and what would later be known as the California Genocide, which is going to come up as we go along. The effects of the gold rush were substantial even beyond that. The uh, the 49ers are... are the gold seekers are referenced to, which is a reference to the year 1849, because that was the main year that everybody rushed into this area it was 1849, a year after the discovery by James Marshall. So the first people to arrive are people from Oregon and people from Hawaii and people from Mexico. They start arriving in late 1848. About half of the people that came in came in by boat. Half of them came over what would later be known as the California Trail. And th uh, that half also had people that came along uh, the Gila River Trail. 49ers, these people that are coming into this area, they faced substantial hardships to get here. While most of them were Americans, there were people from Latin America, Europe, Australia, China. Agriculture and ranching in this area, it expanded to meet the needs, as Meg described earlier, of these incoming settlers. San Francisco went from a, or a settlement of 200 residents in 1846 to a town of 36,000 people by 1852. Roads, churches, schools, and other towns started being built in California. In 1849, they started building their government, and a state constitution was written. The new constitution was adopted by a referendum vote, and the future state's first governor and legislature were, were chosen. In September of 1850, California officially became a state. At the beginning of the gold rush, there was no law regarding any property rights in gold fields or anywhere else, and a system of staking claims was developed. Prospectors would retrieve the gold from streams and riverbeds using simple techniques such as panning. Mining would cause environmental harm, but more sophisticated methods were being developed. And they were later adopted around the world for what was developed technologically during this gold recovery. New methods of transportation developed. By 1869, railroads were built from California all the way back to the eastern United States. At its peak, Technological advances reached a point where significant financing was required, and that increased the proportion of gold companies substantially to individual miners. Gold worth tens of billions of dollars in today's U.S. dollars were recovered, and it led to great wealth for a few. But many who participated in the California gold rush earned little more than they had started with. 
One of the new things that developed during this time is going to be a focus for the next couple of episodes, and that is new methods of transportation, specifically steamships coming into regular service. What do you think of this time in uh, sort of U.S. and California history? I think that I think it's a really sad time, actually, because I feel like there's so much hope uh, that was sort of displaced almost. What do you mean by displaced? Well, you know, uh, there was no way everybody could become rich, right? It seems like the way it happened, that was the thought behind, you know, the migration uh, because, you know, a lot of people left, like you were saying, the eastern part of the United States, which obviously that is what, you know, where settlements first arrived, right? And so yeah. this led to this expansion out to California. And the majority of people that were going there during this time, they were going specifically to try and uh, harvest gold, and to in turn make a better life for themselves and their family. And so because of all that, uh, now this is a time when gold, like you could actually take your gold that you just mined and like buy your dinner with it, right? Like they would accept it as a currency. Um, yeah. It's at the very sort of beginning stages of, you know, it, it was when gold actually had value, and people were willing to trade on it. And so if you there's only a certain amount of gold on earth and that's what originally the value was derived from. And so to think about it, you know, if there's only so much, which I have no idea if they knew that at the time or not, but it was valuable, you know, for some reason. And the laws of nature require that if somebody's going to have a lot of it, right, and be rich, that means there's not a lot more to go around. You know, it's so funny. Uh, one of the things that you say uh, that, that ties into this as we go is everything's a scam. And even the promise of like real riches in the California gold rush, it, it really was a it scam. It was completely a scam. Uh, and um, actually, there was a lot of uh, commerce developed uh, based on the, the gold rush scam, I guess you could call it. But like what I mean by that is like the settlements and the towns would set up, you know, little shops, people would set up shops. Uh, with, you know, the gold miners kit, right? And so you've got people coming into town for, you know, to find their fortune. And you've got uh, people that have lived in the town more than willing to set them up with what everything they need to find their gold, right? I mean, it's, and they're not really doing anything wrong, right? It's just funny that how much, how much that all impacts the entire economy during that time. It really did. It brought the U.S. into uh, better straits, and the, and the U.S. is going to stay there until the the Great Panic and then uh, the Great Depression. So they're going to be there for like for many years. But I, I want to mention at the end of this episode that between 1846 and 1873, it was estimated that non-native people killed between 9,492. And 16,094 California natives, meaning indigenous people who live there. Uh, over the course of the next couple of years, thousands were additionally starved or worked to death. And we're going to talk a little bit about that as we go. But what we're really going to focus on is where did all the gold go? The numbers you just read off, were those from people gold rushing yeah, it's people that came to this area that weren't from this but it, area. It, but it wasn't so, like the numbers don't include like the Mexican American War, right? Okay. No, uh, 1846 to 1873 would be where this focused, I guess. Actually, because the Mexican American War, it ended in 1850, I believe. Well, it's so it would have ended. Like all been wrapped up in 1848, but 
I mm, you bring up like a couple of good I just, things we'll have to look at as we go because that's another thing that's happening as as this story unfolds. Right, and that you know it's sort of important because uh, I'm sorry, California became a state in 1850. 1850, okay, but right. the Mexican American War ended when they signed the treaty and on February 2nd, 1848. So that is the point right. in time where California became part of the United States, right? Yeah, there's a lot of territorial changes that happened right. at that time. Mm-hmm. But that was the end of the conflict between Mexico and Texas. And it basically developed the unspoken border. Like, or un, I don't know how you would, like, there's, it's definitely spoken, but there's a marked border. But, like, if you were to walk there, you don't know. What is that? The boundary, I guess, between the two? Do you know what I mean? Like, if you walk into Mexico, there are places where you don't even know you're in Mexico. Oh, right. Because there's not a wall. Right, right. There's not a wall. There's not a line. There's not anything. You just have you have walked from the last square foot of Texas and you are now standing in Mexico. Same thing is true in some parts of California. Right. Uh, Yeah, you're right. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. So I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CrimeXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance. But plain water can be boring, and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated. It helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. Right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours, and I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners, and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself you can use code true crime excess for 20 percent off your order that's t-r-u-e-c-r-i-m-e excess 
I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes and true crime access will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all natural real food ingredients All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all natural whole food ingredients, and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together, and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so... I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be X. Yes. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations. If you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making. But Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach, I use as a secondary flavor and lemon lime, I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able 
to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place, and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS, and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS, and it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras, and now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime Excess. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash TrueCrimeXS. You can also use the code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code TrueCrimeXS.